Welcome, welcome to the second podcast of Kuno. And Kuno is the platform for humanitarian knowledge exchange in the Netherlands. My name is Peter Heinsen. The subject of today, famine. And the principal actor, Alex de Waal. Alex de Waal is a really well-known writer and esteemed researcher on African issues. Alex de Waal is on many lists, but this list is really interesting. He's one of the 100 most influential public intellectuals, according to foreign policy. It was Bram Janssen who informed me about the new book of Alex de Waal. The book, Mass Starvation, History and the Future of Famine. I looked up the book, and it's really, really interesting. Not only because the way he describes famines over centuries, and not only because of the scientific categories he makes, but I think one of the most important things is that Alex de Waal shows that famines are man-made. To starve is something one person inflicts on another. And the best thing of the book, I think, is the political agenda Alex de Waal pleads for. We should see starvation as a humanitarian crime, and we should act like it. So the next 30 minutes are for Alex de Waal. I hope you will enjoy it, just as I did. What I'm going to do today is, is, is run through some of the, uh, the key empirical findings of, um, of, of, the, of this study. And, and I'll start by explaining why, why, how and why I wrote it and go through uh, some of the major issues. Now, um, as many of you will probably know, just over 20 years ago, I published a book called Famine Crimes, which was um, uh, highly critical of humanitarian agencies uh, for their, uh, their engagement with humanitarian crises in Africa. And and, I, and as the 20-year anniversary of that was coming up, I was also uh, I was approached by the Global Hunger Index to write a, a, a contribution to their annual report on conflict and hunger. So I thought, let me let me revisit some of these same issues that I'd done 20 years previously and see see what's changed, what's the same, and what's changed. And what and and I thought, let me also take it at a global level. Let me just not con- let, let, let me because it was the Global Hunger Index, let me look at this globally. So I began to compile um, a, a world history of famine over the last century and a half. And really that's the, the core of this study. Um, and I, it soon became clear why no one had attempted to do so, because trying to do it in, in, in a properly quantified way is extraordinarily difficult. The data are very, very poor and speculative. But nonetheless, it was possible to tell a very coherent and, and interesting story, and I will give the, the outlines of that story. If you try and pick away at the details, and or you try, or you or you, or you or you try and do a very careful statistical analysis, it will fall apart. But the overall story holds good. I have, I'm very confident about that. Um, and in and, and and in revisiting the the topic of famine crimes, the issue of of of, of, of um, mass starvation as, as a criminal act. I also wanted to reflect on how thinking about um, crimes against humanity, uh, war crimes, the issue of civilian protection, had also moved on in the last 20 years, because, of course, that had been transformed, and bring the two together. And one of the ways I, I brought the two together was in looking at cases of forced mass starvation within the corpus of, 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 of studies of famine, which had not been done before. So taking cases 
like the genocide of the Herero in southwest Africa in 1904, when the colonial powers forced the Herero into the desert so that 40,000 of them died of hunger and thirst. Um, that, is, that is a canonical case of genocide. It had never been put in the, in the history of famine before, but um, I felt it ought to be. Um, the term starvation means something that people do to each other, and, and, and um, I see the verb to starve as being transitive. When you see someone who's starving, that has been inflicted. And initially, um, two and a half years ago, when I, when I started the study, I was hopeful that one, I could call it the history of famine. I was hopeful that we could actually, I could end on the positive note that this, this, this evil has been consigned to history. And I think it's still po- possible to do that. But um, sadly, during the course of writing the book, uh, the, the uh, issue came back. Excerpt from If This Is a Man by Primo Levi. They crowd my memory with their faceless presences, and if I could enclose all the evil of our time in one image, I would choose this image, which is familiar to me. An emaciated man with head dropped and shoulders curved, on whose face and in whose eyes not a trace of assault is to be seen. So this is the epigraph that I put at the beginning of the book, which is from Primo Levi, from his his book, Survival in Auschwitz, in which he um, talks about what he sees as the enduring image, the... um, the, the paradigmatic experience of Auschwitz, which was not the, the gas chambers but was starvation. And 500,000 of the inmates of Auschwitz actually died of starvation. Um, and in, in his book, he has a great deal of attention to the experience of being chronically extremely hungry and, and thinking all the time about food and the struggles among the, 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 the inmates there over who would have a spoon, for example. I also went back to, to Raphael Lemkin, whose book Axis Rule in Occupied Europe in 1944 is the, is the, the, sort of the, the basic text for genocide studies, where he actually coined the term genocide. And in that book, he spends a lot more time on uh, starvation restriction of food supplies as an instrument of genocide, as a crime against humanity, than he does on gas chambers, death camps, and and execution squads. So for him, um, starvation was centrally there as as an instrument of, of, of that terrible experience. And indeed... Um, one of the things that I looked at is, is an episode which is remarkably overlooked in uh, the history of that era, which is the Nazi hunger plan, which was the plan consequent on Operation Barbarossa to starve to death 30 million people in the Soviet Union and, and Eastern Europe uh, in order to, to free up food supplies and land for, for um, 
the German military occupation and the German colonial occupation that was anticipated. Um, the, the Nazis didn't reach their target of 30 million. They reached only 6 million, a million in Leningrad, about a million in the um, Ukrainian cities, 2.5 million prisoners of war, um, etc. Nonetheless, an atrocity on a huge scale. Um, and had they proceeded, I mean, had, had they to reach their target, I would suggest that the paradigmatic image that we have of famine would be one that really reflects that um, insight of that time of Lemkin and, and, and Primo Levi would be an image like this. Um, uh, instead of which we have images like deserts and things. I mean, what have deserts got to do with famine? I mean, people don't live in deserts. There's no, you're not going to have a famine in a desert. And, and, and these are the top images that come up if you do a Google search. And I think um, overcoming this misconception that, that famine is, is, is about you know, drought and natural disaster and, and dry places is one of the challenges um, that we have. Now, one of the reasons why I, I, I think we tend to get this type of image and not the other type of image is that when it came to Nuremberg, the, the Allied prosecutors did not prosecute starvation crimes. In fact, they acquitted General von Lieb, the commander of uh, General Army North, for his actions in the siege of Leningrad because they said that at that time starvation could not be considered a crime under um, international humanitarian law. They regretted it, but they said we take the law as we receive it. And I think one of the reasons, in fact, I'm sure one of the reasons why the prosecutors didn't push it was that while the Nuremberg um, uh, Charter was being written, the war in Japan was still going on, and the uh, American uh, Air Force was at that time mining Japanese harbors intending to, to blockade Japan, and they called that Operation Starvation. So the, the Allies were also using... Um, starvation as a weapon of war. So it would be unlikely that they would prosecute uh, their, their, their defeated enemies for the same crime. And um, and, and going back in, in, in history, the you know, British colonists were responsible for grievous crimes in, in uh, crimes of famine in, in Asia and in, uh, especially in India and in Ireland. Uh, but they assiduously promoted the thesis of Thomas Malthus, that the, the root cause of these famines was overpopulation, which was convenient because you could then blame the people of Ireland and India for dying of starvation because they happened to have been born. So the key points on my, in the book are, 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 are these seven. One is famines have become rarer and less lethal, could be ended for good. Famines aren't natural disasters. They're not principally an African phenomenon. They're exceptional and multi-causal. They're not the outcome of overpopulation. They are inflicted. And lastly, um, there's enough law on the books to criminalize famine. There's just not enough public or political passion to make it happen. So I'm going to run over these um, quite briefly, and then we can have a, ha ha have a discussion. So famines are becoming rarer. This is a, um, it doesn't really look that way from this graph because these these are the numbers of famines over the last hundred years and you see a big spike here. This is this is World War Two. This is this starts 
um, end of World War One. Downward trend, but not really discernible. When you look at the lethality, though, you see a very spectacular decline over the last 30 years. Uh, the famines had been killing people at a rate of about 10 million per decade. These great famines that I'm talking about, 100,000 more or, or more deaths. The, the current IPC definition of famine, of course, doesn't match onto that. You don't want to wait until a famine has killed 100,000 people before declaring it as such. So there's a, there's a definitional mismatch with the, the, um, the current IPC definitions and what we have to use historically. Um, and, and I think we need to look at that decline and we need to, to identify the reasons for it, which are many. But they include, uh, um, among the reasons for this, are the success of the humanitarian enterprise. And, the, and this is where I, I, I want to revisit my arguments from 20 years ago, in which I argued that the, the humanitarians were not addressing the political root causes of famine and indeed were thereby abetting the continuation of famine. And therefore, that was deeply problematic. And I would argue that um, 20 years on, we can revise that conclusion. The humanitarians are aware, well aware, that they cannot resolve the political problems that give rise to, to, to mass starvation and don't pretend otherwise. But in the meantime, even though the number of famines may not have reduced hugely, their lethality has reduced. And... Uh, the principal reason for the reduction in the lethality of famines is the public health and uh, humanitarian uh, professionalism. So that the, the, uh, the kinds of uh, humanitarian technologies that are deployed today are deployed more widely. We go to places that we wouldn't have thought that we might be able to go to 25 or 30 years ago. And, and we are much more uh, uh, technically technically proficient in especially water, sanitation, public health, and child nutrition, and that is saving millions of lives. So at a time when humanitarians feel themselves um, perhaps beleaguered uh, uh, and, and, and under attack from, uh, from many different quarters, I think it, I would like to say that, okay, um, what other uh, branch of uh, what, what other profession or discipline can say over the last 30 years, well, we've saved millions of lives? Certainly not um, some of our critics. Um, it's not just a matter of good intentions. It's a matter of uh, demonstrate demonstrable uh, outcomes. So if, 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 I mean, I come from the UK, if the, the petitioners of the Daily Express who want to close down the Department of International Development would like to see that spike go up, well then um, let them consider the consequences. Because not only, because of course, not only does famine kill people, but it displaces people. The number one demographic impact to famine is not death, it's mig migration. So if you want to see um, ten times as many people crossing the Mediterranean to land on your shores, well, then, yes. Um, go ahead and, and, and scale back your aid budget and, and um, you will see the consequences. Famine is a man-made phenomenon. It's not a woman-made phenomenon, though I think that one or two politicians <laughs> who I could point to who are trying to break this particular gender barrier. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
famines aren't natural disasters. Um, I'll very skipply, quickly skip over this one. Um, I mean, we categorize famines according to their causation, and the great majority, especially the ones recently, are those associated with armed conflict um, and, and political repression. The, um, I, I won't go into the, the data here, but we can um, in, in, in the discussion if you want. And, and this is 100 million or so people who died in famines over this hundred and almost 150 years. You'll see about a quarter of uh, died in, conf- in famines that were associated with no conflict or active political repression. And those were chiefly famines that occurred more than 100 years ago. Armed conflict, active political repression means like Mao's China and the Great Leap Forward famine there. Famines aren't principally an African phenomenon. Um, basically, um, Asia is responsible for about 60% of famine deaths, Africa for about 10%. The great famines of our, of, of our era occurred in, in, in Asia, to a lesser extent in, in Europe in the, in, in, in the uh, period of what I would call the extended Great War. The story of famine is, if you like, a story in four acts. This is from 1870 to 1914. This is the, what one might call the late Victorian Holocaust. The famines inflicted on South Asia, East Asia, Africa, parts of Latin America, by the colonial powers, principally by, by um, Great Britain. Then you have the famines of what I would call the extended world war, starting from the First World War <coughs> through the interwar period, which would include the, uh, the famines in Syria and Persia during World War I, the starvation blockade of Germany during uh, World War I, into the 1919, when the Royal Navy continued to blockade food supplies to Germany after the Germans um, had, 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 had signed the, the armistice to make them sign the Versailles Treaty. It cost uh, several hundred thousand lives in Germany, which is why another reason why um, Britain has, is, is, has a less than honorable history on this. Um, the genocide of the Armenians through the Russian Civil War, the famines in, in, in Ukraine, famines in the Chinese Civil War, and all the famines of World War. Two. The third period from approximately 1950 um, until the, the 80s, the famines of the post-colonial totalitarian systems, number one, China, uh, also the Khmer Rouge, um, North Korea, I would put Ethiopia, 84, 85 in that category. And then more recently, the complex humanitarian emergencies, principally in Africa, but also to some extent in the Middle East that we've seen since then, which are with a much, much lower level of, 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 of mortality. Um, famines are exceptional and multi-causal. Um, there's no singular cause of famine. Now, we, we know this, so I won't go into it in, in, in any detail, but I will give it the example of, of, of Somalia in just a moment. But you see all these different components. When four or five of these come together, like forced displacement, health crisis, failed agricultural policies, and, and war, let us say, you are likely to have a famine. When you ha- and you just take four or five, any four or five of these different elements put them together, and, and, and you have conditions not necessarily creating a famine, but likely 
to do so. And when they interact, when they come together, you get a vortex. You get societies that operate rather differently than they do in normal times. And you get, when you get to a certain stage in nutritional crisis, the, the, the level of mortality among, uh, among children begins to shoot up, in, 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 um, not just going up in the normal increments. Very often when you know, the, the first response to talking to a, a lay audience about famine is, oh, you know, if we have improved seeds or, you know, if we have improved nutrition... And, you know, as it were, the answer is on one dimension. It's not. The answer is on all the dimensions. And, and, and the answer is particularly focused on, on where they come together and, and, and interact. Um, we've seen famine mortality come down rather spectacularly. And one way of, of, of representing this, and then I'll get on to the Somalia example, is... The, this image of the peasant up to his neck in, in water, which was used by the English historian R.H. Tawney 90 years ago, a ripple is enough to drown him. If you are that desperate, if you are that vulnerable, you will go under with just a small, um, uh, you know, a small adversity. Now the water level has dropped, so you need a freak wave, as it were. But these freak waves still occur and may indeed be becoming more... Less uncommon, let me put it that way. Somalia, 2011 being an interesting example. So the famine in Somalia in 2011 came about with this freak wave of you know, four or five elements coming together at the same time. One was climatic, an El, El Nino drought in East Africa, so a major food shortage. The second was the global food crisis, which was entirely unrelated to what was happening there. It was to do with investment in, in, in um, commodity markets in Wall Street and, and particularly uh, a shift from food production to biofuels production in a number of, of producing centers. So globally, the price of food approximately doubled and countries like Somalia, highly reliant on food imports, suffered at the, precisely the same moment that their local production was going down. Then you had a combination of conflict, uh, the restriction on, on assistance by al-Shabaab and corruption in, in the government. And then the last factor um, being the restriction on aid um, through with the U.S. government policies, the Patriot Act, which um, forbade any uh, potential material assistance to a group designated as a terrorist. So for eight months, the United Nations and, and agencies were unable to provide food or to act in areas of al-Shabaab influence, and indeed the U.S. government cut its food aid pipeline by about 80%, and it took until July of 2011. It took, um, depending on when you want to start the, the early warning, between eight and ten months for that, uh, for a workaround of the, of the Patriot Act to be found. And that delay cost 250,000 lives that could have been otherwise saved. Um, Famines aren't caused by overpopulation. The idea that overpopulation causes famines is what I call a zombie concept. It's something that you can kill, but it will still come back to life and torment you. <laughs> and and you know, every time I publish something on, on, on famine in the newspapers, and I, even if I show this graph, I, half the comments will be, oh, it's all to do with overpopulation. <laughs> anyway. So 
Then um, famines are inflicted. To starve is transitive. And we, one of the exercises we did was we took this categorization of faminogenic acts, and I will very briefly run over it, um, which is a first-degree faminogenic act is something like the hunger plan. You actually intend to kill people through starvation. And there are relatively few of those. They occurred basically between the Armenian genocide and, and, and the end of World War II. Then you have second degree, public authorities pursuing policies that are the principal cause of famine. And uh, my colleague Bridget, who is, who is here, has, um, has a nice uh, classification of the different ways in which starvation is, is, ha, in, has been utilized as, uh, you know, as a method of, 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 of warfare leading to atrocities. Star, starvation starvation to kill people, starvation to force people to leave, um, starvation to, to, to um, cause deprivation amongst a, 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 a captive population, starvation as punishment. Um, and, and, and I think this is the area that is, um, for, for the legal scholars, will be the area in which will be most interesting to, um, to explore. Um, and most famines fall into this category. Then you have third degree, which is where public authorities, governments are indifferent. They may, be not, they may not have caused it, but they don't encourage a response. Uh, an example of that was the, the famine that I first studied in Darfur in, in the 80s, which was caused by an economic crisis and, and, and a drought, which were not caused by the government, although the government had poor policies. The real problem was the government did nothing to respond to it and discouraged a response. And then the fourth degree is, is incapable authorities. And those tend to be the rare back in history. So lastly, uh, what are the possibilities for, 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 for pursuing uh, starvation crimes uh, through the courts? What law might be possible? Um, what sort of evidence is, is, um, is required? Um, what are the conditions for, uh, uh, for making it possible? And, and, and the general feeling among the lawyers, and this is an unresolved conversation, it's a conversation that's really only just begun, is that there's plenty of law on the books. Um, there might not have been at the time of Nuremberg, um, but that law has, has, has been developed since then. Um, the uh, additional protocols to the Geneva Conventions, the, the Rome Statute, etc., provide enough law. But the law doesn't put starvation front and centre. It doesn't specifically, I mean, it would be possible to say, to prosecute somebody for a crime of extermination or, 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 or a, uh, a crime of inflicting inhumane conditions and say, this is starvation. But it, it doesn't specify starvation, as it were, as, as, as the headline. So there is an argument for, for, for um, uh, a case that actually says we are prosecuting such and such an individual for a starvation crime or for a piece of legislation that says these starvation specifically is, is a crime of this, um, of this nature. Um, in, in the tribunals that have been held, quite you know, a number of cases starvation has been mentioned. You know, it's been mentioned in, in Yugoslavia, in Cambodia, in Ethiopia, but it hasn't been made the centerpiece of, 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 of prosecutions. Um, the comparison here that I think is, 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 is useful 
um, as a way of thinking about how we might approach this, is rape as a weapon of war. I mean, rape has always been unlawful, um, even in the most expansive uh, definitions of what is permissible in, 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 in warfare. Rape is not there. There is no military necessity for rape under in any circumstances imaginable. Uh, but it was only about 20 years ago, because of, of public clamor, that uh, rape prosecutions for sexual and gender-based violence and exploitation began. And now, the, uh, and, and now it is part of the, uh, the policy discourse, part of the, the, uh, the, the normative discourse, and part of the prosecution. And hopefully this is having an impact. Could we not think about starvation in the same way? Could we not say what's necessary is less a change in the law and more a change in the, the, the public clamor, the, the, um, the attitude? And this may be a, an inauspicious time to, to, to start campaigning for innovations in, in humanitarian law and practice. But what, what is striking in the discussions I've had about this, in, particularly in the United States, is the extent to which this issue for starvation is an issue that crosses all political boundaries. And, and people of, of, of all faiths um, agree on so if we are to, um, as it were, go on the humanitarian offensive at this time, a time when humanitarianism as a whole is in defensive mode, this might be an issue on which we could actually uh, make some progress because it, it, it's one that will um, unite people um, and, and bring in people who maybe are not, are not uh, natural allies or don't ally with us on, 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 on other issues. There's some... Challenges about how we prosecute starvation, in, 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 in which we can which we can get into. There are a couple of other issues that that, that arise. One is a, this is a challenge for the humanitarians, which is how we undertake practical humanitarian action in the shadow of the threat of criminal prosecutions. Obviously, you know, if if in South Sudan today, um, the uh, prosecutor of the ICC is saying, well, there are a dozen or two dozen commanders of uh, military units in South Sudan who I'd like to see in court because they are starving civilians under their, their control. It's going to be rather more difficult for, for uh, humanitarian workers to operate in, in those circumstances. And so this is an issue that we need, to, um, you know, that we need to, to think about carefully and deal with. And the way I would suggest we begin to, to think about this is instead of thinking about those low-level commanders. Think about the people at the top. So return to my, 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 my case of Somalia, 2011. Think about the debates that were going on in the U.S. government at the time, at the beginning of 2011, where you had USAID and some people from State Department saying, hey, we need to stop this famine. We can't allow you know, hundreds of thousands of Somali children to die. It's both ethically wrong and it's not going to make us very popular. Um, and then you get the lawyers from the Department of Justice and, 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 and the Department of the Treasury saying, well, Patriot Act says we can't do this. If you then had a lawyer uh, coming in, uh, State Department lawyer saying, well, famine is a crime. We don't want to be complicit in that. Then the argument might have shifted in, in our favor some months before it actually did. And think about Yemen, too, where basically, um, I don't know what the position of the Netherlands is on Yemen, but certainly the UK and the US are essentially complicit in a nationwide famine crime whose primary perpetrator 
are the governments of Saudi Arabia and, 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 and Yemen, but they are being abetted by the US and the UK. And if there were legal opinions in, in Washington and, 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 and in London saying, uh, we can't go here, we're going to be in legal trouble, then, then it might make, uh, make a difference. That's, that would be my immediate response to that. So, actually, I already addressed this point. How, how to generate political will and public clamor in, the, in, in, in this. I think, we, I think this is a, 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 an issue that can actually cross the political spectrum. So this is my concluding point, which is my proposal for a manifesto, which is that our aim in criminalizing starvation is not to get people in court. If we do that, that's nice. Um, and it would be helpful, it would be a tactic. But the, uh, the, the ultimate goal is actually to make mass starvation so morally toxic that it is universally publicly vilified, to make it unthinkable such that political and military leaders in a position to inflict it or fail to prevent it will unhesitatingly ensure it doesn't occur and the public will demand this. Thank you for listening to the second podcast of Kuno. You heard Alex Toal, very well-known writer and researcher on African issues. And he was telling about his new book, Mass Starvation. If you did like the podcast, please tell others where you can find it. Until next time, bye-bye.